I was just thinking about how it's like everyone is in a shared psychedelic journey. We've got uh, the first nurse in Canada on the podcast today um, to receive the uh, legal exemption for psilocybin therapy. She works for the organization Theracil, which you might have heard in our last podcast uh, with Thomas Hartle, who was the um, first patient to get the legal exemption for psilocybin therapy in Canada. Uh, and Natasha talks about her experience working in palliative care before she joined the organization. Uh, and we also get into the uh, legal trip that she did uh, with psilocybin. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy this. This is going to be a very, very informative podcast for anybody that's looking to get into the space as a nurse or practitioner. And I really hope you guys get a lot of value out of this one. Enjoy. Natasha Fernley. Yes. Here we are. Brett. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling really good. Good. I um, feel as though my life is full of a lot of really amazing things, and I feel very grateful. Amazing. Are you getting lots of uh, requests to be interviewed by people? Um, not really. Uh, I really? think that um, I have a lot of email requests to connect with people individually. Okay. Uh, a lot of nurses reaching out, wanting to like learn about opportunities and right. things like that. Um, but this is my first offer to be in a podcast, so thank you. Wow, amazing. Yeah. I saw your little, what was it that you did? Um, that little short interview that you did. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was like a Theracil mm -hmm. Instagram thing? It was like, yeah, like a webinar, right. just about nursing perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was, I think it was an hour long, but an hour goes by fast. It sure does. Mm -hmm. With a good conversation, it's amazing how quick it can feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I thought you did amazing on that little yeah. 30 minute. Thank you. And that's why I was like, oh, I want to get Natasha. Like you're, you're very uh, succinct. It sounds like you have a strong passion mm -hmm. and conviction for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear the story of Natasha. Let's just get into kind of like maybe through your not necessarily going back to like childhood or anything crazy, but let's go through kind of like your path to becoming a nurse. And now you are the clinical intake director at Theracil. Correct. Right on. Mm -hmm. So tell me about maybe the years as a nurse before your work yeah. with Theracil. Um, can I go back to childhood? You sure can. I, I, feel as though, I feel as though for the story to make sense, it makes more sense to talk about like yeah. the lineage of events that brought me to be who I am today. Perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go all the way back as yeah. far as you want to go. Okay. So I grew up in Northeastern Ontario in a very small little town. Um, Which town? Called Kirkland Lake or just on the outskirts of Kirkland Lake. Okay. Um, and... It was very cold in the winters and very snowy and a lot of mosquitoes in the very short summers. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I had very supportive parents who were, my dad is a biker covered in tattoos and my parents are both very liberal and very inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I was always encouraged to be abnormal and just do whatever I wanted and make my own decisions and be very independent. Um, so I always had that like loving and acceptance for other people taught mm. to me throughout my entire life. Um, but growing up in a small town, I was surrounded by only a small number of individuals to be friends with because right. it was so small. And 
those people at times weren't the kindest to me. Okay. Um, a little bit of bullying going yeah, on? Yeah, some bullying, some, you know, I and I always, even as a young child, was very reflective on why the people were that way. Mm. Um, and obviously, as a kid, you you take it to heart and you're hurt. But I also knew that, you know, their own in, their own upbringing and their own situation was kind of causing them to have this projection onto me. You you knew that from a young age? From a young age. Did like anybody I, teach you to think that way? I'm not necessarily sure. Hmm. Maybe that's my, an interesting thing to have wired in from mm, a young age. Maybe my parents in a way, hmm. but I just think it came naturally to me that I was very observant of human interaction. Right. Um, and I really enjoy finding connections between behaviors and causes. Mm. And that's always been something I've always been doing my whole right. life. Um, so yeah, so as a young child, I had some trauma related to my relationships with my friends. Mm. Um, I also had some experiences of some like sexual abuse mm. when it comes to some uh, distant relatives in my family. Well, heavy. Yeah. yeah. And so when I was a young teenager, I was angry and hurt and rebellious. Right. And I didn't know, I kind of shoved down all of those feelings and all of those memories. And I, they were in my subconscious and I wasn't even aware of them. Right. I stopped. I forgot that those things happened to me. Just total blackout. Just blacked it out. Huh. And then just acted um, unkind to my parents and started to do a lot of illicit substances mm -hmm. and partying and not coming home and just disconnecting and trying to cope with my reality. Yeah. Um, and when I was probably about 14, I did try, I was prescribed an SSRI mm -hmm. um, and I was put on an anti-anxiety medication. And it was the first time when the medication kicked in that I was like, whoa, this is what it's like to be calm and not mm. feel like there's adrenaline and cortisol running through my system. And I was like, this is great. But I had a disdain for pharmaceuticals. Right. And I was like, I do not want to be taking a pill for my entire life. I mm. don't want to be dependent on this. I don't want to like change my neurology in a way that I can't get it back. Right. Even though it was like working for Even you Even though it time. was working. Yeah. yeah. And so what happened is I was on it for about a month mm -hmm. and then I stopped taking it because I was like, oh, I feel better. I don't need this. And then... From that point on, I was like, I need to find a way to feel that way without pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, and, you know, I started to learn about sleep hypnosis and doing oh. that. And I started to do like that led to breath work, which then led to yoga, which then kind of throughout um, nursing school, I started to, to do projects where I was learning about like alternative therapies and it just... Right kind of was on this path of trying to heal my own trauma. Right. Right. And um, yeah. And I ended up in nursing school. Actually, I never really wanted to be a nurse. No. Um, <laughs> I wanted to go to school for fine art. Okay. And I wanted to be a graphic designer. Wow. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, but you wanted to work with people, though, I'm getting. Well, so I think that when I was considering going to school for art, I had a lot of people around me concerned that I wouldn't be able to financially support myself in that career <laughs> yeah. path, yeah. which is like- Well, the whole world is telling you yeah. that you can go be an artist, but you're going to be a broke loser. Yeah, which is <laughs> such BS, totally. but that was what I was told. And when you're like 16, you don't know like 
that you shouldn't listen to all these adults that are telling you this and that. Right. So they gave up on their dreams a long yeah, time ago. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's funny that I ended up in nursing school because um, there was this one instance one day in which I had taken a year off after high school. I worked for a year. I was like, okay, I need to make a decision now about post-secondary. Hmm. Um, and one of my brother's best friends was in nursing school and he just happened to come over to the house when my brother wasn't home. Hmm. And so we happened to spend an hour chatting and he was like, why don't you go to school for two years to college? You could become a nurse and then you'll be able to always have work and you'll always have money. And mm. then you could still do like art yeah. on the side. Yeah. So you get your safety net. Yeah, exactly. And then you can go do the high risk yeah, stuff. Exactly. Being a yeah. broke artist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I went to the college like the next day and like found out what prerequisites I needed to get into the nursing program. Um, and I did all that. And I got into the two-year nursing program. Um, and I did one semester. And then I was like, oh, like, I'm good at this. And like, why don't I do the university program? Because that, like, that opportunity was there. When you said to yourself, I'm good at this, were you mm -hmm. also really enjoying it? Um, I don't know if I was necessarily enjoying it, but I think that I, as a young child, being a creative individual, I didn't excel in like the Western public school system. Right. And so I had this perception that I like wasn't intelligent enough, right. but I am very intelligent. I just wasn't in the right environment. <laughs> and so when I ended up in- I resonate with that yeah, so much. Yeah. yeah. When I ended up in nursing school, I was like, whoa, I'm smart. And I yeah. could, like, I was getting great grades and I was like, I, I could do this. I didn't right. even know that I could do this. And yeah, like, this is hard. Just in a bad container before, yeah. right? Yeah. And so then I ended up in the university program and it was hard because nursing wasn't like my dream. And I ended up in this program and there was this huge challenge of like, I always wanted to go to school for art and I gave that up. And now I have this career that I'm having to go down. And right. there was a lot of anxiety about like having to have a license and having to be registered and having to keep that up. Like I didn't even really know that when I got into nursing. Like I it's very structured. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, there's all these rules. <laughs> I was like, I hate rules. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to be part of this. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and like the, th the whole way through university, I was like, I don't even know if this is really what I want. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I that ended existential up. Existential crisis. Yeah, it was, right? it was difficult. There's so many options. What do I do? Yeah. Is and this it? And I definitely am so grateful I did that because of the whole understanding my abilities as a human and mm. like proving to myself that I am very capable. Right. I needed that. Yeah. Because you didn't get that from the, the schooling system no. that you were in. And just my upbringing, my parents are so lovely, but they like love me no matter what. So I never had to prove, <laughs> I never had to prove myself. Yeah, yeah. I never was pushed. Yeah. They were just like, like, whatever. I, I know I'm awesome guys, but you're pretty biased. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So then I ended up um, becoming a nurse. And and this was in Ontario that you did your nursing? This was in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And um, I really just was in nursing school, like angry about pharmaceuticals and right. angry about the Western medical model. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel bad. I have some a one teacher that I was really like not the greatest to because I was frustrated and I may have took it out on her. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't take it personal. Yeah. Um, she, yeah. Was, she was just going through a tough time. Yeah. Thanks for everything you taught me. <laughs> um, so yeah. And then I ended up, um, I was in a, a committed relationship then mm -hmm. and my partner at the time went to Royal Roads University 
And so I ended up, while I was in nursing school, every summer traveling to Vancouver Island, spending four months here, living here, and then going back to University in Ontario. And I did that every year for three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Me and my dog. Two lives. Yeah. Yeah. I have a a German Shepherd and we would drive across Canada together and drive back, just me and her. It's a good drive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's like a quarter of it's a good drive. Yeah. You just cruise through the prairies. Yeah. Yeah, That part can be... uh tough to keep your eyes open yeah yeah <laughs> but i i enjoy driving like it makes me happy yeah, i loved nice. it yeah, yeah. i did just that feeling of pure freedom i think i did all the way from ontario to vancouver island in like three and a half or four days wow it was like i did like 16 hours and then slept for six and then like 15 wow. hours did you just sleep in the car yeah pull over and yeah i had a hatchback and oh, i nice. had my dog's bed in the back and Amazing. she's a big dog and yeah. we just both like laid on the bed and i was safe because i have a german shepherd yeah <laughs> you got your security guard <laughs> yeah. there yeah. yeah. And so then I started to connect with Vancouver Island and the West Coast and just the lifestyle out here and mm. just feeling as though like this is where I belong mm. um, and just meeting amazing people. Um, and then when did you make the decision to be a full-time Vancouver Islander? Um, the moment like, I graduated. Okay. I was like, my are fi- you? I'm like, yeah. you're still going back to Ontario? No. <laughs> no. My final practicum was in 2016. Okay. Uh, the year I graduated and I did that online and I did it here in BC. So I did like a nursing practicum in BC while I was still in school. And then I've lived out, I've lived here full time since then. So January, 2016. 2016. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at the same time I got here, I got Mm -hmm. here in November, 2015. Where'd you come from? Ontario. Oh, where? Uh, (laughs) A small town outside of Hamilton, Hmm. which for anybody listening that doesn't know Ontario, it's a small town outside of Toronto. (laughs) Most people know Toronto, right? Yeah. Everyone um, thinks I'm from Toronto when I say I'm from Ontario. I'm like, nah. Yeah, that's just the, the peg, right? Most people, especially people who aren't from Canada, they're like, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, um, you know, there isn't a ton of highlights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in Victoria, I didn't know much about Victoria. Really coming from Ontario, I, uh, I kind of knew it a little bit, maybe Tofino. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first place I went to, mm-hmm. to go surfing. And uh, I was actually living in Vancouver at the time because I thought that was the the place for me yeah and then i saw some stuff on the island and i was like Ooh, i'm gonna have to uh, get over here <laughs> i went to vancouver once when i was a teenager to like visit a friend i met at like a bike rally with my mm. dad and that was the first time i came to bc and they were all talking about the island the <laughs> island and in my Come mind yeah in my mind i was like oh there must be like a little island you know that there's like one park on like that's what i yeah I and there no are idea. those but then there's the big one. But they were talking about this yeah. island. And I just re- remember like reflecting like, oh my God, I had no idea at the time that like that was going to be my home. And I was right. going to be in love with the island that they yeah. were referring to. Did you feel it at a certain point when you were this like deeply connected? You kind of mentioned that you were connecting to the community and the mm-hmm. people here. It was I had a switch that went off with me. It was probably about six weeks after I got here. I think I was only going to be here for about two months was the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I showed up in a motorhome. It broke mm-hmm. down. Uh, and then I just didn't really want to try and fix it. I was like, I think I'm good. Let's just yeah. stay here. <laughs> and I've barely left in the last six years, however long I've been here, because it's just kind of it's kind of got everything. I think that we shouldn't maybe. Yeah, talk it's terrible, too terrible much. place. Yeah. You really, no one should come here. No, it kind of sucks. <laughs> it rains a lot. It gets yeah. really gray in the winter. Oh yeah, no light. Just a bunch of weird hippies, you know. Just mm-hmm. stay away. Yeah, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah, place. yeah. No, my moment was. Uh, probably the first day I was here, mm. my partner and I, we had just done an epic road trip across Canada. 
um, we like weren't together. We were friends and we knew each other since high school. And he was just like, we hung out once and he was like, drive across Canada with me. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I have to work. And he was like, come on, drive across Canada with me. And I was like, okay. And I quit my job. And we spent a month in his car. Wow. And we ended the trip here. Um, And when we got here, we stayed at Ocean Island Backpackers Hostel, downtown Victoria. I know it. And I remember just like the vibes of a hostel Mm. um, and just walking around downtown Victoria and looking at all like the beautiful old buildings. Yeah. Uh, And then we made our way to Tofino. And like those moments were just like, this is it. Yeah. You see those beaches out there and you're like, what? This is Canada? Exactly. It's crazy. Again, Mm -hmm. terrible place. Don't (laughs) Yeah. yeah, that's that's very that's very cool. I, I that's such a similar story mm-hmm. to what I experienced uh, coming out here as well. Um, and then the community out here, mm-hmm. there's a different there's a different vibe. Mm-hmm. There's a different connection to to nature. I mm-hmm. noticed as well, especially mm-hmm. coming from uh, southern Ontario, mm-hmm. and you're like northeastern, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, a whole different side of environmentalism mm-hmm. out here that is like very prominent, and everybody's very like politically active mm-hmm. on that that mm-hmm. side. And so how did that integrate, like coming in and kind of joining with this community and then moving into an alternative form of nursing, what you do now? Yeah, I think that just touching on people being connected to the environment here, Mm -hmm. I think that from what I've learned through my journey doing this work, the connection with the environment helps people to understand that like we're all connected Mm -hmm. and like everything is interconnected and like we are part of the earth Mm -hmm. and like the more you spend in nature and the more you spend with the trees and the water the more you realize that like we're all one Mm -hmm. um and so of course it's easier to be in like a close-knit community when like that's the environment you're around and that's the culture yeah and that really makes sense um uh, and we're just, what are we touching on? The journey from, okay, nursing yeah. to getting into this work. Yeah. So you were doing uh, traditional nursing, mm-hmm. Western medicine mm-hmm. system, which was giving you a lot of um, you know, anger, angst, yeah. what do you want to call it? A lot of uh, resistance to that. There was beautiful parts about it as well. Yeah. Like what were I, the beautiful parts? I So my background is in uh, geriatrics and palliative care and a lot of dementia work. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy connecting with humans and connecting with people. Um, And I found so much value in just caring for others. Mm -hmm. And I actually, through working with people with dementia and people in altered states due to their diagnosis, really learned that I am talented at holding space for others. Right, meeting them where they're at. Yeah, Mm. and just like when someone is in a delirium or they have dementia and they think that they're a seven-year-old little girl at the train station, it's like you don't tell them they're not a seven-year-old girl at train station, you you meet them there. Right, because that's their reality. Because that's their reality. And and also like regulating my own central nervous system to be calm and grounded for the sake of them being able to mirror my central nervous system is really something that I just do naturally. Right. Um, and I just love, you know, like having, I'm I'm a very smiley person and I kind of have like a lot of emotions on my face. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy for me to like communicate with people who right. are in an altered state to kind of make them feel safe because right. they perceive that I'm okay. So then they think things are okay. Right. Because whatever um, they're experiencing, it could be potentially pretty scary. Definitely. Very scary. <laughs> and, yeah. that, and if you're in that altered state mm-hmm. and there's fear that kicks in, mm-hmm. that could be a very dangerous situation, yeah. especially if you have someone telling you, 
oh no 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 like this isn't happening this is all in your head but it's so real for them Mm -hmm. and we can't really be in in, inside anyone's Mm -hmm. head so who are we to say what they're experiencing yeah yeah it's real to them so it's their reality um and then just like the western medical model and how we care for the elderly people is just so not great no right like being in a long-term care facility where you're already so vulnerable and you're already so scared Mm -hmm. and then the staff only have 10 minutes to get you up because there's just such a staffing shortage and the, yeah. and the staffer they're carrying people but they're burnt out because their totally. jobs are so hard and yeah. it's just like it feels very mechanical yeah it's yeah. it's a difficult but um i felt like i brought a lot of light and positivity to that work right. um and i ended up transitioning from doing like i worked as a care aide while i was in nursing school and i also worked in the activities department kind of a little bit so mm-hmm. like doing like fun things with the staff members yeah or with the residents. And then I ended up working as an RN on the floor doing like nursing when I graduated. Um, and then I ended up um, work, being really close with the managers at my facility and collaborating with them. And then I ended up in a managerial position at a facility. Mm-hmm. So I ended up um, managing, I was the assistant director of care for a facility during peak pandemic. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. And so that was yeah, a whole that's, experience. That's all out here, right? That was here. So where, yeah. what uh, facility was that? At? Um, it was called Selkirk Seniors Village. Okay. Um, the facility in general um, was kind of in despair. It was a sister facility to the one that I had worked at for a really long time. Right. And so the manager that I was really close with, like, let me know that this job opening was happening. And I knew that they were really short staffed. They were struggling to function in their organization in their in their facility but i was like okay i want to go there and like try to like help improve things Mm. so i did that before there was a pandemic and then i was in this role where yeah like it was already kind of things were in shambles and i was Mm. doing my best to try to like bring some sort of organization and improve things um and then the pandemic was announced and everything just went like chaos. it was chaos did the was there any outbreaks at the facility there the, wasn't uh, not at my facility yeah. there were at facilities that were owned by the same company on the mainland oh, yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. the lower mainland there yeah i have a really interesting story about that actually i um uh i had actually had a psychedelic experience i went to a retreat mm-hmm. um i did i did a training this training called chiron Um, and I don't know if, well, so I, I had an experience and in this experience, I connected with my body and found that there was like this energy inside of me that was like anxious and scared. Mm. Um, and through this experience that I had, um, I somehow communicated with this energy and told it like, you're safe and you're a part of me and I trust you. And instead of being this like black energy moving around me, it became this like very white light in the middle of my chest. And it became like a, like powerful. Wow. And this was, I had this experience like f- probably a week before the pandemic was announced on like the Friday of what was March 13th. Yeah, yeah it was like kind of coming. You were mm-hmm. hearing some news about it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it was like mm-hmm. there. So I got back from having this experience in which I like found my power wow, and found that this anxiety within me was actually like a power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the Friday where the pandemic was announced, I was at work at the facility. Um, and our main doctor came in and said, 
Like, this is going to be really bad. A lot of people are going to die. We need to put this facility on lockdown so that people like aren't being exposed. And this is like really important. And the bosses that I worked with that were above me, they went home at two o'clock and they didn't put the facility on lockdown Whoa. and they just left. And I was, I was, I was third in charge. So that was my two bosses and I was the third in so charge. Of the facility. The show now. Yeah. So, well, I didn't know what to do. I went home and I was laying in bed and I was just reading about the stats of like the timing of how long it is where you put the building on lockdown versus mm. the amount of cases that are likely to happen versus like, right. and it was like literally every 24 hours makes a difference. Right. And I felt this energy inside of me, this like black energy that was like right. scared was and moving like around. Light. Yeah. And I was like, I like realized in that moment, like this is my body telling me that like I'm powerful and I need to do something. And I can handle this. Yeah. And I woke up the next morning, set my alarm for 630 on a Saturday. I had no responsibility to be there. And I went into the to the facility and I put the place on lockdown. <laughs> what? Yeah. And I locked all the doors and I put signs wow. up and I told people you need to like get the names of everyone who comes in here and Holy crap. yeah and it was just like a very were, momentous were moment there, in my life yeah were there any supervisors there that day like it's a saturday like there's there's probably people well like i am the supervisor right. Right. um there was like an rn who's like the head nurse yeah she um, just kind of came in and you're like i'm like this is happening I'm doing some reading yeah we're locking this down <laughs> we're putting this on lockdown wow yeah how so did the, how did the like residents react to that um, well, I don't know if they were really aware. Right. It's a really large facility mm -hmm. and lockdown includes the lobby and the main doors. So they weren't aware. Um, and it was only a couple days. So if any family members came, they were allowed in. They just had to sign in. They had to follow right. these protocols. You started tracking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so that was my last bit of my Western medical model nursing career. Right. And I did that and I worked throughout the pandemic, like different regulations every day. We needed to do changes to our COVID protocols every day. It was mm -hmm. like so like 10 out of 10 stress oh, no kidding. on a, on the daily. Yeah. Um, and then I got so burnt out. I was like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And I quit. Uh, I gave my resignation. So what what month was this? The pandemic hit mm -hmm. March of 2020. So it was in August. Right. And that's like right when Parasol. Yeah. Like all the exemptions came through. Yeah. Right. So in August, I um, I knew that I would likely end up working at Therasil because I had worked there part time already through the pandemic. I was doing that managerial job and I was also working at night for Therasil. Okay. Um, helping to build their intake process, the very first iteration of it. Um, and so in August, I was like, I need a break. I quit my job. And I told myself, like, I'm not going to take any other job unless it's like my dream job. Like, I'm just taking a break. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you earned it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I didn't work um, from August until November. Um, didn't work, but you were working with Therese. I, I, I wasn't at that point. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I took a, break from it all. took a break from it all, went to Ontario, spent some time with family, mm. Um, did a lot of reading, a lot of meditating, a lot of connecting with people I care about. I kind of gave myself a mission at that point mm. to go on distance outside walks with anyone I could. Right. Because I was like, I have this space. Mm -hmm. Everyone's dealing mm -hmm. with this pandemic. People need somebody. Yep. And like, that was my work that I did. Oh, I just scheduled walks with people and was just like, how's it going? I, I've <laughs> been meditating okay? and sleeping and eating well. Like, can I be like an ear? 
Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You still sounds like you're still working. Yeah, I was holding space. Yeah. But just in uh, like it doesn't feel like work because I just it fills me up. No. And that's that's the the amazing thing is that is a lot of work, that Mm -hmm. emotional work of holding space for someone Mm -hmm. and being there and listening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if that's something that doesn't feel like work, Mm -hmm. then you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about. um, So we've mentioned Theracil a bunch. Yes. And just for our listeners, could you Mm -hmm. describe Theracil, the organization and kind of. Uh, what they're doing and then mm-hmm. and then we can jump into um i guess november you would have started working with them yeah, again and like yeah. working with them full time yeah so theracil is a non-for-profit mm-hmm. um and we're an advocacy organization and we advocate for canadians mm-hmm. um specifically we started advocating for those who are dying of cancer mm-hmm. to get legal access to psilocybin therapy mm-hmm. And how we do that is that there is an application process where you can apply to Health Canada as an individual to get an exemption mm-hmm. from like the drug regulation to be able to legally have permission to be in possession of psilocybin. Right. And so what we do is we help people to go through the process to apply mm-hmm. um, and we assess whether they're a good fit. Right on. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. and, then, and then do a lot of advocacy, just like campaigning to, you know, um, communicate to specifically at the beginning patty haidu who is our minister of mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. about the need for people to have access yeah. to this therapy yeah i've been loving watching all the the nurses and practitioners just yeah. all over her tagging her you yeah know, listen to us but like but this. like she's amazing because she said yes yeah right yeah. she believes in this yeah and absolutely. she and she's, she's got her own bureaucratic red mm-hmm. tape that she's fighting through mm-hmm. as well to get these exemptions and this mm-hmm. crazy long wait list that mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. pushed through right mm-hmm. yeah 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 and like she didn't have to say yes the first time. Mm. And like that was a momentous moment when yeah. she was like, yes, these people can have access to this, right? Mm-hmm. It's like setting a precedent. Like, right. And so that was um, that was the first 19? We'll no. no, so that's healthcare practitioners. Right. I think from my understanding, um, I don't remember specifically, but I think there were two patients at the very beginning who got exemptions granted right. in 2019, oh, okay. 2020. 2020. 2020. 2020. Yeah, because Thomas, Thomas was one of them. Yeah. Exactly. 2020. Yeah. yeah. August 4th, 2020. Yes. So those were the first. Yeah. And yeah. then healthcare practitioners came after. Okay. Um, but there were subsequent patients after Thomas and the other patient at, that had followed. Got so it. they continued to give patients exemptions. Mm-hmm. And then Theracil's argument was like, you're giving patients these exemptions. You need to have practitioners that can <laughs> train them so that they can do this safely right. or that can treat them. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because I mean, as powerful as a psychedelic experience can be, it can be so much more powerful when it's mixed with proper psychotherapy mm-hmm. with someone who understands the medicine and has a background in like clinical psychology mm-hmm. or just counseling, mm-hmm. some sort of um, mental health work. Yeah, we usually call it um, that they've worked with the human psyche. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. there's so many different disciplines, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, letters beside people's name Mm -hmm. (laughs) for what they've done right yeah Yeah. and when someone is facing the end of their life and they're facing like existential distress Mm -hmm. you don't really want to do mushrooms alone like that could (laughs) be that could be harmful yeah you need a container and you need you need to prepare extensively Mm -hmm. and you need someone who's going to be there to make sure you're safe because it's hard Mm -hmm. like having a psilocybin experience isn't easy even just having someone to hold your hand, mm-hmm. it's amazing how much that makes a difference. A huge difference. Or just someone in the room so you yeah. know you're not alone. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. um, psilocybin is a 
very much a substance that, like you said, makes you feel connected to everything. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you like you feel connected to everything, but there's no one there. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're you don't have something to ground yourself to. Yeah. Like I've had someone just hold my hand, and that's all I need. Yeah. And it was just a beautiful experience. Yeah. Uh, and then I've done it alone, and like feel a little bit kind of like uh, I I wish someone was here, and mm -hmm. like I want to you know message someone, but I mm -hmm. can't use my phone in that state. Yeah. <laughs> it's very difficult. And uh, yeah, I think yeah having. That just that person there, mm -hmm. it, and it then the the, the prep that goes into it. There is a lot of counseling beforehand in mm -hmm. which the patient is building trust with the person who's going to hold space, and they're reflecting on the patient's like whole life and their and what they've experienced and who they are and their own traumas because everyone has their own traumas and what they've been suppressing in their body and where they are at and teaching the patient ways to be grounded and like breath work and like preparing them to be able to be in a better place to do the medicine session. Like right. um, ideally people build up to the medicine session through self-care practices. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you just are living your life and then you take mushrooms and it's going to be transformative in a way that it can be. Right. It's like you should probably start journaling and mm -hmm. start maybe doing some meditation. There's no specific things that need to be done. It's very personalized. Right. Right. So like what are the things you want to do to prepare yourself? Right. And then building that like personal care plan right. and then using those to build up to the medicine session. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty amazing what I've been seeing from these patients who have either gotten their exemption or are waiting on their exemption, how it's like the journey starts the moment that they reach out to us. Amazing. The moment that they talk to us, the moment that there's the idea of doing this, I see that they there's like this little tiny bit of motivation to do a little bit more for themselves because there's this like hope that there's yeah. something that could help them. Right. Because mm -hmm. like, like Thomas was speaking to, um, he reached a point where uh, the like the traditional medical system mm -hmm. uh, just kind of said that's all we can do. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like go home, be with your family, but mm -hmm. uh, we were we've ran out of ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a you know not not even a good luck, just like you know wish you all the best. And then you're, you're kind of like sending someone off to their like doom without any real. <laughs> I have, I have, I know. I have I, so many thoughts that I've been reflecting on lately about words and how powerful words are mm -hmm. and how like words are like spells. Mm -hmm. And when the medical model tells someone like, I, you're palliative, you're dying, mm -hmm. then of course they're going to decline. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're telling them that yeah. it's like our minds are connected to our bodies. Mm. Um, and so it's been really hard with my process because I have to help people to write letters to Health Canada explaining how important it is that they get access to psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, we're explaining the severity of their situation. But through doing that, it's like forcing Canadians who are dying to like deeply reflect on how horrible the situation they're, they're in is. And that's harmful. Mm -hmm. And like Health Canada has been coming back specifically after their doctors have written letters saying we support this. They've gone through Therosol's processes. They've explained their situation being like, we need to know your exact prognosis, which is like, how long do you have to live? And are then, you close enough to yeah. the end? Do you That's have a month? Wild. 
Do you have three months? Do you have, and it's like, nobody really knows no. how long someone has to live and how harmful it is, is it to have this person who's like in extreme anxiety, have to go back to their doctors that are super yeah. busy, barely have time yeah. to be like, Hey, I need you to put in writing that I only have a specific number of days left for right. health Canada. And I'm sure that that puts the doctor in extremely, no, like, they don't want to, well. mm-hmm. I don't want to say that you have six weeks. No, like that's. That's not something a doctor wants to write down on a piece of paper. Uh, But I mean, if that's what it takes right now, Mm -hmm. then I'm I'm of mind to just like, let's just whatever we need to do to get people in. Of course. And just like navigating the system. We're doing it, but it's just like the system needs to change. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. it's going to like Mm -hmm. enough doctors kind of forging those letters and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, this is what that will raise enough flags. Hopefully, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of an unstoppable movement at this Mm -hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and the people at health canada like i don't know how they can justify like arguing with the physicians yeah because the people at health canada aren't the experts on this the I physicians know. are right so it's just yeah, we should listen to our scientists yeah and our doctors exactly and people who we've put in these positions mm-hmm. that have that have, that are studying it day in day mm-hmm. out for decades exactly right? Yeah, yeah, that's a. I mean, you go on a rabbit hole forever about how uh, maybe the government needs to just. Uh, we need to listen to, um, yeah, the experts a little bit more. Yeah, the yeah. science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I uh, really feel so honored to like get to be so informed on these patients' stories. Yeah. Um, and like I bring them through my intake process and. Um, learn so much about them and then see their journey and see them healing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like in this very unique position to be learning like on the ground about this therapy and just seeing it in real action. Yeah. You're like, this is like the clinical study Mm -hmm. that's happening within Mm -hmm. the four walls you work in. That's so cool. And and Theracil is actually partnering with Imperial College London and McGill University to conduct research. Amazing. And we have a research director, Julia, who's rocking it, like building up the system to do research. And I'm really excited for that. And we're running clinical trials. No, so the um, the goal is to do research on people that go through our process. So it wouldn't oh. be specifically a clinical trial. It would be like observational research on the people that are doing this in our process. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Which is like re- more real data than oh, like yeah. a controlled study. Yeah, because they're, they're in it. Mm-hmm. Like these are people that are dealing with that terminal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Do they start working with them before, like in the intake process? Mm-hmm. And then you put them into... Yeah, so... Uh, the research partnership plans aren't completely established yet, so they're in the works. Mm. So ideally what would happen is, from my understanding, is that someone who's external from Theracil, who like is unbiased, yeah. would then contact the patient and there'd be specific surveys for them to complete like at pre and then like during and post yeah. at different time points mm-hmm. to compare yeah. um, like stuff about um, anxiety and depression and like scoring those on yeah. scales and if they can get people before they talk to you because it's uh i think that would be very powerful mm-hmm. right um because like you said people hit that end of the road right they with the, the the current medical system and they've lost all hope they're in a bit of a place of desperation mm-hmm. and fear because they don't know what else to do mm-hmm. talking to them in that point mm-hmm. that's like the baseline Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because once they connect with us, like I said, they've there's already the on the journey. <laughs> right. I don't know if there's a way to connect with them before. I and don't that's think what, that, that's what so that yeah. shift is what's so fascinating yeah. to me, right? Because I would 
feel the exact same way. If, mm-hmm. uh, I, my mother went through this when mm-hmm. I was uh, 25, so nine years ago. Mm-hmm. She was diagnosed uh, with stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then about three months later, they were like, okay, that's that's it. We, we can't do anything else for you. And mm-hmm. there was no other options at that time or none that we could find. I'm sure there were some people doing underground therapy. Um, but I, I think about that often as I've been going through and hearing these stories from people of like, we needed some hope. We needed mm-hmm. something. And uh, there's just nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that unfortunate. And so that's, again, that's why I'm passionate. And I'm mm-hmm. so excited uh, with the work that you guys are doing because mm-hmm. I want to make sure that, uh, you know, as few people as possible um, go through that that same situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And with end of life and people facing the end of their life, hope is so important. Yeah. But hope is important for everyone. Yes. It's not just like, it's like we can justify that someone at the end of their life has no other options. Mm-hmm. How is this going to do harm to them? Of course, they should get access. But like everyone should have access to yes. this in yeah. a therapeutic, safe manner. Yes. Um, do you think this is just a good, tangible place to start? Because oh, it's really yeah. that's why you know there's a big push for this right now. Mm-hmm. Because how do you say no to someone that might only have a few weeks to live? Mm-hmm. Right. It's easy to say no to someone and vet them and mm-hmm. put them through the ringer and be like, oh, okay, you're you're actually fine. Like you don't need this therapy. Mm-hmm it's still not right to do that. Mm -mm. But I think it's easier to say someone who's like clearly healthy, like Mm -hmm. physically, that's, you know, maybe middle-aged or whatever, right? But to say it to someone that's like right at the end, that's pretty cold and Mm -hmm. heartless. Yeah, but it's heartless to say to anyone. True. And like, there are like healthy, normal, young people who obviously everyone struggles with some mental health stuff. Everyone can benefit. But there are a lot of people out there suffering from like severe PTSD and like severe like substance use disorder Mm -hmm. and all of these other diagnoses that could really benefit from this. Um, And at this point, I've started to um, submit Section 56 applications for people with other diagnoses for the sake of communicating to Health Canada that we support this for all in medical need. Um, And it's unfortunate because, you know, we're a very small organization and I'm the only one at this point, like managing clinical intake and Mm. and managing, like assessing whether patients qualify for this. And so it would be amazing if I could just open up the doors and say, yeah, you have anxiety, you have depression, you have PTSD, you have substance use disorder, you're suffering, like let's bring you through the process and submit your exemption. But we just don't have the capacity to do that. So we're specifically strategically submitting a couple exemptions for each diagnosis Mm -hmm. as a way to continue to advocate for access to those diagnoses mm. um and uh and have anybody like has anyone outside of the uh the scope of like terminal end of life diagnosis have has anyone gotten the exemption on the patient side like for ptsd or so no but we have um at the beginning of when these exemptions were granted we did have exemptions accepted and granted for people who were in remission so that means that they've had had a life-threatening diagnosis, but they don't have one currently mm-hmm. or people that have like an active diagnosis, but they're not considered palliative. Mm. So we saw that they opened up to those three different categories. Right. Um, but for some reason in the past, like four to six months, Health Canada has stopped approving exemptions for people in remission or active diagnosis and are cutting mm. it back to only people who are like, we can prove that they're actively dying uh which is frustrating what do you think the slowdown is is it because there's an election coming i i don't know i don't know i i I could hypothesize about what what's going on with health canada and their strategy and their perspective but like i don't i don't know right 
I don't know. I, yeah. I think that maybe part of it might be their capacity and right. that, and that there's so many exemptions coming through that they're like, we can't process mm-hmm. all of these. Right. So let's just only process the ones that are actively palliative so that we can stay up with all these applications. Right. Um, I think that that's, that's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a theory too that kind of the whole whole world is operating in a bit of a state of burnout right now Mm -hmm. it's been a very intense uh year and a half for everyone uh personally pretty much everybody i know is uh is going through some sort of you know personal something existential crisis Mm -hmm. whatever it is overworked Mm -hmm. overstressed uh cortisol levels have been way too Mm -hmm. high for too many months Mm -hmm. in a row um i have a lot of empathy for everybody working within this space and all the pressure that's being put on it uh i was just thinking about how it's like everyone is in a shared psychedelic journey right and how like we are in suffering yeah and how when you've done um work with psychedelics Hmm. you start to realize that there's like this balance in existence of good and bad and like when you're in a psilocybin journey for example it's like when there's something that comes up that's uncomfortable that causes anxiety you're supposed to go in it and accept it and trust and let go Mm -hmm. and you always come out on the other side to something beautiful and light and and there's lessons in the hard stuff that is like the most important lessons Mm -hmm. that cause the change and the ability to adapt after the session when you integrate. And so like there is a collective experience right now of being in the hard stuff and being in the, in the, in the trauma and in the scary. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's always kind of a reason and something at the end of it, some transformation. And there's, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. But if you haven't been doing this work and you don't know that, it's so much harder and so much scarier, right? right? And people don't have this understanding if they haven't, if they just don't have it. Like, right. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, this oh. uh, this feeling of like this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. You know, let's uh, let's sit with it. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's not make it good or bad. Mm-hmm. Whatever we're feeling right mm-hmm. now, and let's just observe mm-hmm. and sit and come out the other side yeah. stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really hard for a lot of people right now. I know. It's crazy. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it's uh, it's strange times, and there will be something really powerful and amazing on the other side of all of this. Yeah, there already is things that are strong True. and amazing and powerful that are coming out of it. I see mm. it. I see all of the change and growth, and like part of this work and what we're doing yeah. is like able to happen because of what's going on in the world and the right. times that we're in. Mm. So, yeah, what what do you feel? From your perspective mm-hmm. in this pandemic and from the work that you've been doing, mm-hmm. what are some of these beautiful things that you're starting to see emerge? Mm. I think there's more awareness mm. of what's needed to be happy and healthy. Yeah. I think that through the pandemic, we're seeing that like we need to be connected to one another and we need to be connected to nature and we need to think about mental health and we need to help the people who are worse off in society and we need equality and everyone needs to be given the same opportunities and be treated the same. And I see this influx of people wanting to move away from the cities and move to like more rural situations and grow their own food and buy local and spend local and and just be more connected and i think that people are motivated to take action regarding those things right um and i think that people need to get off their phones 
<laughs> people need to people need to not believe everything they read about all of the bad things that are happening and or believe it but know that that's not all there is right it's like there's this reality on our phones that we're all looking at about like we're addicted to this like negative news about all of these horrible things but like you go for a walk and you look around and like life's beautiful mm -hmm. and like we need to connect with that more right. and connect with each other more and not just sink into the phones and to right. the stories and yeah and all the negative media yeah headlines that are coming out um i agree i like i always not always but i've really attached the philosophy of focusing on what you can control mm -hmm, what like, you can do almost like the arm's length approach and don't get me wrong you can reach a lot of people through through media mm -hmm. that's what we're doing this mm -hmm. podcast right yeah uh and that's of an course. important thing as well but also when we're done this to shut it down and go spend time in your local community mm -hmm. and at like arm's length from mm -hmm. people treating people well mm -hmm. in your your circle around you mm -hmm. and letting it like ripple out from there mm -hmm. i love that so much and it just makes you feel amazing yeah it makes everybody else feel amazing yeah. and you understand that like you have a ton of power you do everyone has huge power yeah 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 like you walk down the street and instead of looking down, you look at the person you walk by and you smile, that changes the entire world. Yeah. It does. It does. It, yeah. Like we're all interconnected yeah. and everyone has the power. And like, you don't have to be on all the time and be perfect all the time. And like, you're allowed to be sad and you're allowed to be anxious and you're allowed to have hard times. But like, if you can do something positive, it makes such an impact mm -hmm. more than people really realize it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because then yeah. that one person who got a smile from a stranger, they feel a little better. They yeah. smile at another stranger. Yeah. They open the door for someone. Yeah. Someone like drops something, they pick it up for them. And it just like goes and goes and goes. Do you remember like quick. peak pandemic, you would like go down the street and people were like scared to look at other people. That I was, was literally weird. walking down the street going, hi, yeah. hello. And I was like yelling <laughs> at people. Hi. <laughs> Hello, are you, yeah. How are you doing? Is there anything I can do for you? Would you like me to hold space for you? Let's go yeah. for a walk. Yeah, yeah but uh, yeah, we're the all... Fear can really, it can really grip people. It can. And I think it's good for us to understand that while there are some things out there that can be quite scary right now, we have to face it and not like turn our head away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from what's going on yeah or reach out for assistance mm. like we don't have to face this alone yes like we, we mm. feel very alone when you're on your at home and you're in your room and you're looking at instagram and you're comparing yourself to what everyone else is doing mm. you feel very alone but we're not alone yeah. and and i think that um what i've been reflecting on through this work is that like a lot of the psychedelic psychotherapy process mm. is a container for people to feel not alone. Right. And like people are sick and they're scared and they're feeling alone in their, their fear. Right. Or people have substance use disorder, they're struggling with mental health, they're on the street, they're homeless, they have these like negative thoughts, these negative stories in their mind and they feel alone. Mm. And people, humans just need to know they're not alone because right. we're not alone. Yeah. And there's so much power in just being witnessed mm -hmm. and being connected. And it doesn't take much to just like, if you're feeling alone right now, like call somebody, mm -hmm. they want to hear from you. Right. You yeah. might think they don't, but they do. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah Cause they're also feeling alone. Yeah, exactly. You know, like we're all kind of, and I think that's where I've gotten to as well is that 
um, the feeling of alone, it's not about not being around people. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's a state of mind. Mm -hmm. Like nobody understands my suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, I have this problem in my life and nobody will get it. Mm -hmm. And if you go and do any sort of group therapy or a session where everyone's kind of like working on stuff, mm -hmm. I think the biggest piece of gold that I've gotten out of that is that we're all suffering in some way. Mm -hmm. Like we all have some sort of struggle or challenge mm -hmm. that we're going, that's going on in our lives mm -hmm. that makes us feel alone. Mm -hmm. And when you see that, like maybe a room of a hundred people together and you're like, whoa, everyone is in some sort of pain. That, that feeling makes you feel connected to people. Yeah. You're connected in your pain exactly. and in your struggle. And it's like a relief. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, it's not just me. I know. <laughs> One thing that I've really learn to love about myself is that I have this ability to be very, really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think that stems from like my support system and I'm, I'm very supported and very loved. So I know that I can just tell anyone anything. Um, and I feel comfortable and confident doing that, but I've seen this like beautiful thing that happens when I'm vulnerable with somebody and they're like, they like put their walls down and they're like, Oh, yeah. you're human and you're exactly. messed up. And yeah. like, and I'm like saying it as if it's like not a big deal. And right. they're just able to then do that back to me. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You you like open the door for them. Mm -hmm. It's to like vulnerab vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Showing someone that like I'm fucked up too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like come in this room and join me. Yeah, let's exactly. Let's do, yeah, let's do it together. <laughs> right. And yeah. then it's like, it's not scary anymore. No. And you realize your problems aren't as significant. People, we love to hold on to our problems. Mm -hmm. Like they're really big and scary mm -hmm. and unique and no one gets it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then someone else comes in and tells you about their shit. And you're like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. <laughs> maybe this thing, maybe I should let this go. Maybe this doesn't have to be something that's just like my little doll that I like safety no. blanket that I hold on to. But then also it's important to remember that that holding on and that like having this like hiding it that's often a strategy for survival yes. and like and like people sometimes are in situations where they have to do that and that is like that's you protecting yourself and right. that's okay right. and like acknowledging that that's you like loving yourself and caring mm -hmm. for yourself is that like not being so open about it or not expressing it like right so it's not that that is a negative it's just that there is a way to transition mm -hmm. to be open but you need the container of people around you to be safe to do right. it right and so finding that container is what's important and mm. psychedelic psychotherapy is just the perfect container to do that mm -hmm. it's like honestly you don't need the psilocybin to have a safe container right this just this culture of psilocybin and psychedelic psychotherapy because people learn so much about connection and they learn how to hold space they can provide that container within it mm. but there's so much to be gained just from the process mm. then the psilocybin is just this giant catalyst that gets you to this other yeah. place right so it's not just the mushroom and mm. as we're talking about this i really wanted to touch on um something that's been like really near and dear to my heart and that i've been like thinking about a lot is just like wanting to reduce harm mm. and wanting people to understand that like just because there are all these news articles coming out saying like mushrooms will heal your depression it's not it's the not best idea pill. to just yeah it's not yeah. a magic pill you shouldn't just like go on your own and take mushrooms and think that that's going to get you where you need to be mm -hmm. and i'm really worried that there's not enough education happening to align with this all this talk about the effectiveness of psychedelics right. because the studies that are proving that these are really effective are like very controlled clinical trials in which people are supported. Right. It's not out, you know, mm -hmm. and like I'm, a, I'm a supporter of, you know, exploring psychedelics in a, 
in a less structured way if you're educated and you're safe and you have people around you right. that you trust yeah. and you, you know that container if you, you have the container. container exactly yeah. mm-hmm. um and you know if you're wanting to do psilocybin and you don't have like a therapist support and you don't have somebody to sit for you like at least find a friend mm-hmm. and have a pact and say yeah. like we can tell each other anything and like ensure that you trust one another mm-hmm. start talking about your trauma um talk about like um safe touch and that like you can hold hands but like and you just build a relationship with them before one of you does it while one of you sober right and like build yourself the container yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's a beautiful way to do it Mm -hmm. i couldn't agree with you more um and i really want to hear now about uh your your session that you did Mm -hmm. so we we spoke a little bit before that you have used psychedelics in your Mm -hmm. past before working with Mm -hmm. therasil but then you got to the opportunity to actually sit in a like clinical therapy mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. and do that. So let's walk me through, walk us through mm-hmm. that experience. It was probably the most life-changing experience of my oh. entire existence. Oh. And um, just before you get into that, the yeah. reason why you did that yes is because you need to have that experience as someone who's going to be giving like providing providing this Mm -hmm. treatment for people yeah so sitting through it yourself uh, imagine like if i were going to teach you how to fly a plane Mm. and i was going to bring you to the airport Mm -hmm. and get in a plane and say well i've never done this before but this is cross your fingers yeah exactly (laughs) that would be ridiculous i wouldn't get in that plane with you no no but imagine if i brought you to the airport and i have had hours of flying time and i've experienced every like uncomfortable situation and learned to adjust to it and i'm like confident in my how much faster and easier and comfortable you're going to learn to fly fly a plane Right. And I ask you questions about your experience and you can answer everything. Yeah, exactly. And then you feel confident and you trust me because you know that I've been there and that this isn't like foreign to me. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so I've had experiences uh, before the one that I did as training purposes. And uh, my experiences before, some of them were supported, some of them were structured, some of them were not. Mm. Um, And I've definitely had a lot of learning and have had a lot of growth through those personal experiences outside of that container. But through getting my own section 56 exemption and being in a psychedelic psychotherapy training. So I was in a training cohort um, and I was learning so many amazing things about the research and the process and how to hold space and how to, how to do this work. Um, I, then began to prepare with two people who were also trained to do this, who were were counselors and social workers and professionals and just them holding space for me and helping me prepare for this journey as if I was a patient Mm -hmm. so that I can prepare and have the most transformative experience I can in the safest container I can. Um, And I decided to Um, we always help patients to build intentions so that you can have something to focus on for your journey. What is your intention for this? Uh, And my intention was really focused on reflecting on understanding what it would be like to be one of the patients that I help. Um, And so I focused my thoughts and my reflections on like, 
what would it mean if I was told I had a limited life expectancy? Mm -hmm. um, and like, what would happen? Mm -hmm. And um, and you'd already been speaking with so many people that were in that situation yeah. that you could kind of slip into those shoes. But also, I worked as a nurse and I've right. provided palliative care. Mm -hmm. I've literally like held someone's hand as they've taken their last breath. Mm -hmm. Like I've been there. Mm -hmm. And I never really have reflected on my own immortality. Right. Like I I don't know if I'm I was just young or if it was just easier to dissociate from those thoughts, but I have so much respect for the beauty of the end of someone's life, but I never thought about my own. Hmm. I was like, I'm invincible. And then I, <laughs> I like force myself to start reflecting on it. Mm -hmm. And and I- Is that a conscious thought that you're invincible? Or did you kind of no, realize that like that was just- It underneath? was just like, yeah, it was just underneath. I was just like, I'm not going to think about right. like- it's your, Like you talked about before, it's your own like uh, survival mechanism. It's to cope, yeah. right? To yeah. cope. Yeah. And- because um, all you're seeing is mortality constantly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people leaving. Yeah, like, that's not going to be me. Yeah, <laughs> no. And so uh, I started to think about like, if I had a limited life expectancy, I think that what I would want in that situation would be to take advantage of the little limited time I have left, and to like, there was like a list of things, like a bucket list that I started reflecting on. Like these are the things I'd want to do. Mm. But then I also reflected, like, I know that I would probably be terrified and anxious and depressed and feel alone. And I would probably curl up in a ball and be in bed and cry. And, like, I don't think I would cope with that situation, even though my hope is that I would. Mm. And so I went into this legal prep, prep prepared for psilocybin session with those thoughts. Mm. Um, and I was with my sitters, Adrian Oberg and Anne-Marie Armour, and I ingested five grams of mushrooms made into a tea. Um, we had a beautiful room all set up that was all Zen. I had an altar with like items on it that were special to me. Mm. Um, and I had eye shades and music, uh, and I went into my experience. Um, and as I was going into it, um, Adrian prompted me and he said, like, why are you here? Whoa. And I was like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I started crying immediately. Like the mushrooms were just kicking in. Mm -hmm. I just started to feel like altered and mm -hmm. getting visuals. And I was like, I just want to be able to like understand the people I help. And I was like, started bawling. Um, and then I went in and I, it's like. That's a powerful thing to say in that moment. Because yeah. it sounds, you kind of said like, going into that you were feeling like you weren't you know you weren't really ready for it no and then for him to ask that question for you to say that yeah it's power of mushrooms yeah that state, right? something really neat also is you knew exactly what you're doing when you got there mm -hmm. and the day before it was really weird you start to like when you start to see that everything's interconnected hmm. you also start to see like synchronicities and that like it feels as though things happen for a reason um, and the day before my psilocybin session, I woke up and my goal was to be as grounded as possible to prepare. And I asked my roommate, who's like one of my best friends, I was like, what do you do to get grounded? And he was like, oh, I walk around in the dirt with no shoes on. So, so, so we, we woke up and we went to the beach and then we ended up like impromptu at a garden and we walked around with no shoes on. We smelled every single flower <laughs> and we picked like all these herbs and we just like looked at the trees. We got ice cream and then it's like, we just did 
all of these things and I didn't realize it, but I was living a day that I would live as if I had limited time left. Wow. Like I, I had this beautiful day that was like, if I knew- This was my last day. Yeah, it would be the day. And I did that on the Friday. Unintentionally. Unintentionally. <laughs> and then on the like subconsciously. Right. Yeah. And then, okay, so then moving forward to the session day, mm -hmm. I take the psilocybin. Adrian asks me why I'm here. I say, like, I just want to understand the people I care for. Um, and then I go in and I have this inward experience. There's, like, a lot of visuals, a lot of connecting with my body, a lot of insights. And um, I had told my sitters that I wanted to have permission to speak throughout the session as it, we were recording the audio. So if I had thoughts, I could just like say them out loud so that I remembered. And I had some major insights about stories mm -hmm. um, and how we are all um, told stories in our lives. Um, and we all have this voice in our head that's like a narrator of our own story. Mm -hmm. um, and how growing up, I was exposed through my sister to like some stories that are really important to me. Like, mm -hmm. for example, Star Wars or like The Matrix. Right. And I started to realize that like those stories have kind of like really become part of my identity and mm -hmm. who I am. Um, see the world. that's how I see the world. That's how I act. That's like, it's, it's, but I was thinking about how often people's stories that they're told growing up are stories of being alone and stories that are sad and stories that aren't okay. Mm -hmm. And like, I have those stories too. Um, but if we're stuck in those stories and those narrators in our mind, we're just stuck in them and how we need to be able to know that we're not alone so we can adjust the stories in our mind. Yeah. So there was that insight. Um, and then there was also an insight about time and about how, like, it's not about how much time we have, but about the, like, quality of the time that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and... Because well, we actually don't know how much time we no, have. No, nobody so knows. it can only be about quality yeah. if you look at it from that direction. Exactly. Um, and so I kind of came out of the session feeling like I wanted to continue to, like, live out my story in the best way I can. And make the most out of my time and like love myself and be grounded and live as if I have limited time left yeah. for the reason of being able to then bring that to other people. Right. It's like the more I love myself and the more I make the most of my time and the more I keep my story in this positive sense, the more I can teach that to others and be able to be there for others and have the capacity to hold space. Yeah. You can just show people that it's possible. Yeah. And talk about vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. When someone sees another person that's living really well, yeah. it's very present, it's very happy. And maybe they haven't been around people that are like that. Mm -hmm. And then they see that person, they're like, oh, it is possible. Mm -hmm. And it's like that first little, you know, light bulb that can go off of being like, okay, you know, the, you're the sum of the five people mm -hmm. you spend the most time with right that whole thing um it's very important to to show up for people in that way if you can mm -hmm. to show them that like hey you know i'm here and we're doing it yeah yeah i have Join this <laughs> i have this thing that i've been learning about myself that i am really good at holding space for others but that is kind of my way of coping with reality is that right. if i'm responsible for ensuring someone else is okay i then am motivated to make myself okay yeah. but if i'm alone and I have nobody to be responsible for. That's when I'm not okay. Oh. Because it's like I have 
I guess, throughout my life, like regulated my central nervous system for the sake of other people because yeah. I like love people and I want to make sure they're okay and I want to care for them. Mm. But like, I don't the give caretaker. that. Yeah. But I don't give that love to myself when I'm alone. Interesting. And that's like, that's my struggle. Mm. And that's, that so I'm not sad? always okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you were that, you probably wouldn't be human. Yeah. Right. Everybody's got their darkness that yeah. we're all, all constantly, we're, we're our own projects, right. Mm -hmm. uh, that we, we get to work on for mm -hmm. as much time as we're here. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you became aware of uh, during your, your psilocybin session or you kind of known that? No, I think that I've actually only become aware of it in the last like three weeks. What? It's like a new insight. Like I always knew that I was really good at holding space for others right. and that, and I, maybe in the last six months I realized like, oh, when I was a nurse and I was working with direct patient care, I was a lot, it was a lot easier because I was constantly holding space for people mm -hmm. where now at my job, I'm doing a lot of projects and work. And so I'm not holding space for other people as much. And so it's easier for me to like fall into a depression. Mm -hmm. um, but I've just realized in the last couple of weeks, like this severity of how extreme it is for me, like that is really, wow. that is really, that's my thing is I need to. I need to learn how to be alone. And mm -hmm. I, I actually um, just ended an eight-year relationship. Whoa. So I have this transition of like, now I can be alone. And mm -hmm. now I'm learning like to love myself and mm -hmm. to like to like make myself healthy food, even if there's nobody else around to feed and to mm -hmm. like go for a walk in the forest, even though there's like no one else to bring to go for a walk in the forest. And, and just yeah, yourself just be alone. Yeah. Do you yeah. find the need to, when you're alone to like reach for distractions? Oh yeah, totally. And usually the distraction is like reaching out to other people. Yeah. Like I'm like, hey, exactly. That's your thing. Yeah, that's my that's thing. That's your crutch. That's my it's thing. Humans. It's other people. Yeah. Loving everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad crutch to have. No. It's also very important to just be able to sit and be happy. And it's something that, yeah, I mean, it's it is important, but uh, there's also that fundamental level of human being is that we like we need community. Mm -hmm. It's so important mm -hmm. for us. Uh, so it's good to be able, from my perspective, to feel okay being alone, but mm -hmm. also understand that I don't want to spend that much time alone. No, it's okay to want to connect with other yeah. people. Yeah. Totally. Retreat and get your alone time and feel mm -hmm. good in your alone time. But then yeah. like, it's not the goal to just like be by yourself. Mm -hmm. Maybe just for some people yeah. to each their own. Totally. Uh, I know I need people. I need yeah. community. It's mm -hmm. like, it's kind of the, it's the, like one of the only things mm -hmm. I know that for sure of trusting myself that like other human beings that I can share time with and experiences with mm -hmm. is, uh, is what I, it's like my oxygen, mm -hmm. you know, totally. so it's there yeah. at the, at the core of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do believe though, that like our presence and our thoughts are influence our reality in ways that aren't obvious. And so like when I'm alone, and I'm like having negative thoughts, I'm like still feel as though that's like sending out some negative energy to the universe. You know, like there is a part of me that's like, I need to like hold space for existence even when I'm alone. Like right. like there is power in our thoughts and our energies and our body and that like, and that like even if I'm having negative thoughts when I'm alone, it's still like influencing things around me in ways. Mm -hmm. 
it's not like I'm not completely disconnected. None of us are completely disconnected. Yeah, the collective consciousness. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a real thing. Yeah, I do I've definitely. Experienced it. I have. I have definitely experienced yeah, it. But they're also, you know, like that's. A, it's a good thing to be aware of, and also understand that there's always going to be those negative thoughts, mm-hmm. and they're part of the collective consciousness. Yeah. Like it, it, they need to be there to balance everything out, yeah. right? Like it's. Uh, it can't all just be positivity mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. right? We uh, we all have our, our darkness that we're going through. Um, so, what about some of the patients that you've worked with? Uh, there's a lot you of don't really specific no. people, individual or names or anything. Cause I, I know there's confidentiality there. Um, but what have you, what have you seen people kind of come in as, and then transition into, and then go out as I've seen, I've seen people really reflecting their perspective on reality in different manners. And I think that I've seen one patient specifically is coming to mind who was told that they had only a year to live like seven years ago. And they told me that they at no point ever considered themselves palliative. And they went and got a passport and they were like, do you need a five-year passport or a 10-year passport? And they were like, I'm getting a 10-year passport. <laughs> I love it. And this individual is still alive. Um, Power of the mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen that. And, and like we talked about, like the hope of having something to look forward to is shifting people's perspective, which is allowing them to like, embrace the power of their mind in a way right. that they weren't before um, and was this patient feeling that way before like they never you said they never thought they were palliative mm-hmm. even when they kind of hit the end of the road with their uh traditional like, yeah term. this this patient is pretty inspirational because he is been doing that before psilocybin was something that was in Thomas? his perspective. No, I'm not talking about Thomas. <laughs> I'm not talking like, about Thomas. This sounds familiar. No, but, that guy has a beautiful but perspective yeah, on life. But, and I just think this person, I like they are being vocal about their story. Right. And I think that they have so much power to share with people who are in these situations about their perspective and how that's influenced their lack of progression of their disease. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. so unbelievable. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. the power of the mind really is my main learning point from everything that I'm doing. Yeah. It is huge. Yeah. Um, and, and I, like psilocybin is not like it is, it's an access. Mm-hmm. It's not something that, um, like we talked about the magic pill, it doesn't mm-hmm. come in and actually mm-hmm. like, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do itself. anything. No. It like just allows you to open up a different pathway. Yeah. To have a different awareness or a different understanding. Exactly. Uh, or perspective and then off you go. Yeah. It's like the perspective of people doing this work is that we all have our own inner healers. And like we, as humans, you know, you cut your arm and then your immune system without you being conscious of it goes and heals that wound on your arm. Well, we have that ability when it comes to trauma and mental health, we all have our own inner healers. There's like this part inside of you that knows what you need and knows how to heal you. So like your sitters who are helping to guide you they're not healing you they're not magic healers they don't have any answers they just know that you have the answers within yourself and they help you to find it um and so yeah psilocybin doesn't 
change anything within us. It just turns on all of your neurons in a way in which you can really get a inside peek into what's going on within your own mind Mm -hmm. so that you can adjust if needed and you can, um, you can create new pathways and you can, uh, you can change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Blow out old programming and yeah. completely shake it up and turn it on yeah. its head and create something new. Yeah. It's very cool. It is so cool. Is there much talk therapy involved when you're, cause you know, big thing with mm-hmm. traditional psychotherapy, mm-hmm. um, a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. You're kind of, you're sitting with a counselor, you're kind of just talking it out, mm-hmm. talking it out. And the counselor is really sitting there to, uh, get you to a place where you just figure it out yourself Mm -hmm. with enough questions or enough Mm -hmm. rambling right so in the actual session itself Mm -hmm. you mentioned that um that you had a recorder so Mm -hmm. you could say things Mm -hmm. but uh your counselor sitting with you They're just sitting there. Yeah. So there's a lot of talking when it comes to prep and integration, mm-hmm. but on the medicine day, not so much talking, not a lot of counseling. It's very experiential. It's very like you're encouraged to go inward and have that inner experience. Obviously though, there's no rules and it's very personalized. So if someone feels like they need to talk, the counselors or the people sitting will oblige, but they'll also like gently encourage them to go back in. Mm. Um, and it's usually like as the session gradually comes to an end, that's kind of when some talking may come about. Right. Some integration may start, although sometimes people decide to be quiet and, and there isn't talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely more having that inward experience and being with yourself mm. and connecting with yourself. Right. Is the goal right and then mm-hmm. the the integration part mm-hmm. how does that work yeah so the integration is at least three sometimes more counseling sessions that occur after the psilocybin session mm. um and usually those sessions the first one is the day after or a couple days after and then like a couple months or a couple weeks after and then a while after but i like to tell people about how yes you have these counseling sessions that are considered your integration mm. But integration is an active process that just continues forever. And there's so many ways to integrate. Like you could finish your session and you could be like walking down the street and you're telling your friend about something and you have an insight. Oh, you're integrating. Or you could notice that you're doing something differently after the session. That's integration. Mm -hmm. Like you, it could be five years later and you could be like, Oh, there's that thing I've, you're still integrating, right? Right, And it's like an ongoing process. And like, once you get into this work, you realize that like life is just a lot of integrating, right? It, it never stop. ends. It, it never ends. Going. It never ends. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that uh, as a, um, I mean, with traditional, we talked a little bit about, you know, being on uh, SSRIs. Were you mm-hmm. on SSRIs? Yeah. For a very short yes. period as a teenager. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, anti-anxiety is anti-depression, mm-hmm. uh, medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very much just like this external thing you put in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of like conscious thought mm-hmm. to it. Um, don't get me wrong. People, when they're doing it, they're, they're doing their psychotherapy as well. And, and maybe it's helping them get mm-hmm. to that place. Um, but it, uh, it lacks that kind of here, like we're going to, you're always going to be working on this to a goal where. You actually don't need this medication anymore. Mm-hmm. It's more just like, no, you need you need this medication. You're mm-hmm. gonna keep taking this medication mm-hmm. in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, where with psilocybin and other psychedelic therapies, like you just said, one session, mm-hmm. three counseling sessions, mm-hmm. integration, integration, integration. Mm-hmm. But the the drug or the substance isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. 
no. which is a very amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And it, and it can have it's very like empowering. very long lasting effects, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and like SSRIs and SNRIs and antidepressants, anti anxiety, like those are important. They're needed. Like some people aren't okay, right? And they need to have those medications to be okay. Um, and they have a place, uh, but they often like numb your right. feelings and right. so it's hard to connect with like what's happening and to go through processing it mm-hmm. and then transform it into something else right so that's where um psilocybin comes in and often people are not okay they go on ssris and then what we do is we gradually taper them off them to then do the psilocybin session and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't need to go back on them wow. because they've done something to help themselves cope with whatever was eating them away at si- inside mm-hmm. that made them need those medications. What about people being on medication and doing psilocybin therapy? Yeah. So um, I actually just organized for an amazing pharmacist, Jag Dole, to consult about all of my processes and our clinical, um, clinical stuff. And she provided amazing advice about pharmaceuticals and psilocybin. And what I learned is that um, SSRIs um, don't necessarily um, need to be stopped altogether, except because they're using the serotonin pathway, they can damper the effects of psilocybin. So someone would have to take a lot of a higher dose, especially if they've been on those SSRIs for a long time. Um, but going off an SSRI really fast can be really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I would never advise anyone to just stop taking their SSRI. They need guidance and yep. they need to be tapered slowly. Yep. Um, but there are concerns with other like substances, like such as MDMA, that increases your serotonin, mm-hmm. that you can have serotonin syndrome, which can be really dangerous. Whoa. So with SSRIs, they increase your serotonin or they you like continue to have more serotonin built up in your brain mm-hmm. and then MDMA as well. So if you combine them, it can be really dangerous. I can overdose on, uh, on serotonin. serotonin and you can have like, you can get muscle rigidity, you can have seizures, you can have fever and you can die. Wow. Um, so you have to be careful with those, but the research research is showing that psilocybin itself doesn't increase serotonin in the ways that MDMA does. Mm. So we're not worried about serotonin syndrome. We're just concerned about the dampening of the effects of psilocybin. Mm. So that's why we taper people off of the SSRIs. So then does psilocybin increase the amount of serotonin? Like when you take psilocybin, is it serotonin? Is it dopamine? Like what chemical? Oh, you're testing me here. You're testing me here. (laughs) Oh, let me read and get back to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it doesn't increase serotonin the the way MDMA does. But yeah, I think it's like dopamine and serotonin and nor like they're all part of it mm-hmm. and, and it acts on the same receptors, right. right? It's like it kind of is like a key and lock mechanism. So the, the psilocin, the, the, the drug psilocin is like this kind of the same shape as serotonin. Right. And then it like goes into the same part in your brain that okay. serotonin would. But right. yeah, I'm not a neurologist. That's so. okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll have one on soon. Yeah, and, uh, you not. should. Our research director, Julia, has a master's in neurology. So I she would be would great. I would love to have her yeah. on. I, I'm a bit of a, a nerd in that sense of just yeah. like wanting to understand something 
to the like nth degree. Yes. As much as my brain can handle it. Yes. There's a point where I'm like, okay, yeah. I lost you. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting and talking with someone with a PhD about something. There's always that like end of the row where you're like, this is over my yeah, head. Yeah, you're now. just like smiling. Yeah, this it. is a different language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So um uh I haven't spoke of this yet, but since we're talking about like medications mm-hmm. and like counterindications, so Part of my position at Theracil is to build out our clinical intake process. And so we have an entire extensive process that we bring every patient through to assess them, to ensure that there's no counterindications, that it's not risky for them to do psilocybin, that they're a good candidate for psilocybin. Have Um, you had to turn anyone away? Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, often. Yeah. Like there are people who it's just not right for them Mm. or they have a physical reason in which it wouldn't be safe for them. Mm. Um, And so they go through like a really rigorous process that includes like um, um, I do like an intake assessment with everyone where I have a very detailed questionnaire and I find out all about their medical history and their medications and their physical being. Um, And then we have a medical form that a physician must complete that also has all of those criteria in very detailed uh, lists. Um, And then once that's all completed, we evaluate again as a team, whether they still meet our criteria and it's safe for them to do it, as well as once they're connected to a therapist, that therapist then has the opportunity to assess whether it's safe for them to do it. So there's, there's so many steps that the patient goes through to ensure that it's a good fit for them. Wow. Mm -hmm. And is that, so I guess the better question is how many people do get through? Yeah. Well, right now um, we've had, I think we're at 37 exemptions granted successfully right um you also have to build the case and then pitch it yeah government yeah so through that whole entire intake process Mm -hmm. as i'm learning about someone i then help them to use that information to write a letter to health canada and they write the letter i i assist them and i make a template and then we go over it together and we build it together Mm -hmm. because there's certain points that i know that we need to touch on for health canada yeah um, so I help them to ensure that we yeah. touch on those points. You're like a grant writer. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, I know how to like pitch this in the right way yeah. to, to make sure that, um, you know, that it's being communicated properly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there's no snags. Mm-hmm. Right yeah. And that letter is accompanied also by a letter from their physician stating the physician supports them. Mm. Um, and then Health Canada knows that they've gone through like Theracil's rigorous intake process as well. Right. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. So what what's the future of Theracil? What are you guys working on right now? Right now, our main focus is pushing for psilocybin regulation for Mm -hmm. all in medical need, like therapeutic um, psilocybin regulation. Is it, uh, so I I remember talking uh, with Thomas a little bit that um, one of the big goals is to have it so that the individuals don't need to pitch directly, that like if they have a therapist already Mm -hmm. and they have a relationship with their therapist, they don't have to go and talk to Health Canada. It's just like their therapist can decide yes, this is right for you and so, we're just going to do it. So our outlook and our hope is not that the therapist pr- uh, decides, okay. it would be a physician. Okay. So we call this kind of like um, a physician or a practitioner who can prescribe. So right. it could be an NP, it could be any other practitioner. Um, and we call it, we've been saying like a doctor as gatekeeper model, right. which means that like the physician, just like marijuana, mm. right? Like physicians can prescribe marijuana mm. and they're the ones that are deciding not Health Canada. Right. So we think regulation should be created that gives doctors the ability mm. to prescribe this. 
Um, cause that's not within a therapist's scope necessarily to like do the assessments and like the medical background and to prescribe something. Mm-hmm. So the end goal would be that the physician could prescribe it and then refer them to someone who can refer them to people who are trained like therapists, nurses, social workers to provide the therapy. Got it. So I, imagine that my position may transition from um, specifically helping people to apply for these exemptions to instead then being like a referral service for people that have been prescribed. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that like, you know, just like marijuana, not all doctors are going to want to take on the responsibility of prescribing this. And I think a lot of it will will go through physicians who have like completed Therosol's training or other trainings who are competent in psilocybin therapy and understand the processes would be the ones prescribing. Yeah. And so there'll be like a network of people who can provide those prescriptions that and referrals. Network. Mm-hmm. I, that's, mm-hmm. That seems like a way more efficient system mm-hmm. than all of these individuals having to like go down and you help them with their own individual letter. Yeah. That's uh, just. No, Health Canada needs to not be part of it and it just needs to be part of the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And how, how do you feel about that transition? Like, to ha- or how do you feel about the prospect of that becoming a reality? I think that it's inevitable. Yeah. I think that like, we can't go back now. Mm-hmm. People need this and people know about it and more people are learning and more people are advocating. And this is just the way of the world, mm-hmm. but there is an election coming up mm-hmm. and there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen and yeah. who's going to be elected and who our new health minister is going to be. Um, and Therosil's currently working on a project to send out surveys to NPs to find out the political standpoints mm-hmm. of a lot of the political parties and find out like who supporting us and who isn't supporting us and communicate to MPs and to politicians like that this is something that they should be supporting and that like the Canadian public feels that they should support it. Um, So there's a lot of political activists. Yeah, a lot of political activist campaign. And um, my role within that is a lot to do with like patients and organizing patients to be part of committees and to... um, we are starting a compassionate access committee, we're calling it. And pretty much it's just a group of people, patients, practitioners, professionals to advise on regulations. Mm-hmm. So we've taken the marijuana regulations uh, and with the help of our lawyer and Julia, our research director, we've taken them and changed them to fit psilocybin. Mm-hmm. But now that's just a really large document that's a draft. And now there needs to be more discussions about like what needs to be altered. What do we need to add? What would it be? What would be ideal with regulations? And we want to create like a very clear draft regulation and be like, here, Health Canada, mm-hmm. it's it's ready. Right. Just do it. Right. Right. We've done all the work, done for, all you. The work for you. We've and, used the template of yeah, another substance we've, we've, that was in the same exactly, class. Only. Exactly. Three years ago, mm-hmm. when did weed become legal? Two, 2018? Some, yeah. So recent. Recently. And Thomas and I were also talking about the MAID system mm-hmm. for assisted suicide, which mm-hmm. I think in 2016. That mm-hmm. sounds like another great template. Are you guys working with that at all? Mm-hmm. So we definitely use it as a way of communicating. Like if people have access to MAID, they should have access to psilocybin. Yeah. And what but does MAID stand for again? Medical assistance in dying. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but the regulations are completely different. And so we're more going off the marijuana regulations and there's, but there is a big difference. Like you can't just 
go to a dispensary and get mushrooms and go and eat them like like you, you do with marijuana. Can in Vancouver right now. Well, you can, <laughs> but that's not what we think is the best exactly. approach that for people not to be what safe. You guys are doing. No, and so we need to think about the regulations and how they will be different for marijuana to ensure it's like medical therapeutic use. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. This yeah. has been such an amazing conversation. Yeah. Is there anything else that? Hmm. that you'd like to talk about anything else um how can people how can more people get involved how can we help mm-hmm. Aracil and what you guys are up to amplify this message i know we're all just citizens here and a lot of people listening are very passionate about this what can they do to yeah so everything that Theracil has done in the past all of our advocacy and all of the changes that have happened because of our work is because of all the people that support us mm-hmm. and Everyone has the power to make a difference in everything that we do. And so if you want to get involved, um, go to our website, theracil.ca, which is T-H-E-R-P-S-I-L, therapeutic psilocybin. Um, and you can read a lot about all of our processes and our team, but there is a take action page where you can see how to take action. Um, and you can follow us on social media and you can share posts. And the big thing that we're doing is having people reach out to their MPs. And so we are in the works of creating a survey that people can then through like very simple steps on the take action page, send these surveys about MPs perspective on psilocybin regulation. So that's coming out soon. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, but just, you know, share, talk to people about this. Like be honest about if you're feeling safe to about your experiences, Mm -hmm. like spread the word, let people know that this is something that you're interested in. It's just like marijuana, how we were like, oh my God, I smoke weed. I don't want anyone to know. And then as soon as it was legalized, you're like, oh, my uncle that I thought was the square has been smoking weed his whole life. And I didn't even know. The whole city just reeks of weed all of a sudden. Exactly. It's the same with with this. As soon as you start talking about it and make it a safe conversation Mm -hmm. and that it's something that's normalized, that's how we change it. Yeah. That's when the real power comes. Exactly. In. Awesome. Exactly. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for you sharing for having this me. time with us. That was that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I can't wait to just continue the conversation. Amplify your message. We'll link to everything that Therasil is doing beautiful. in our newsletter coming up and on our socials as well. And just keep going. Thank That's you it. so much. Thanks, Tasha. Light and love, everybody. Yeah.